0: Hello podcast listeners, a quick notice before Emperors of Rome commences. We are now in the closing couple of days of a Kickstarter campaign for the podcast Caesar's Gallic War. This is the second series which looks at the second half of Caesar's work and his campaign in Gaul. So if you'd like to hear myself and Rhiannon Evans talk about it to exhaustive detail, get ye to Kickstarter and search for Caesar's Gallic War. As I say, you have about two days, thanks to everybody for their generous support so far. One more notice... Ave podcast listeners, a quick disclaimer before we start this episode of Emperors of Rome. In this podcast we try and stay true to the historical sources, and in this episode that means some pretty dodgy behaviour on behalf of the Emperor Elagabalus. If you have young children in the back of this car who might ask you some awkward questions or repeat something at school that you might not want them to, maybe consider skipping this episode until later. And on that note, salve and enjoy the podcast. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Kaelin Davenport, Senior Lecturer in Roman History at Macquarie University and Humboldt Research Fellow at Goethe University, Frankfurt. This is episode CXXV, Call Me Not Lord, For I Am A Lady. Elagabalus has long been remembered as deviant and sexually depraved, His behaviour was shocking for a Roman citizen, let alone that of the leader of the Empire, and Rome was relieved to see the end of him. While it's hard not to feel a twinge of sympathy for him, it's equally hard to excuse him. So with that in mind, here's Caelan Davenport. Okay, so we've got a young impressionable teenager, head of a religion, head of the Roman Empire. Let's keep the dynasty rolling. Although that doesn't seem to be very much his concern. It's a concern of his mother and grandmother. It's the
1: concern of his family, yes. And probably so, Rome maybe. <laughs> well, they want to see stability. I mean, he's still young, so mm. he's hopefully not going to die any time soon, but still they want his stability, you know. Remember Caracalla after the unfortunate incident with Plautilla didn't marry again and you know in his entire sole reign he wasn't married. He mm. he sent the marriage Proposal to the Parthians, but that came to naught, and so he died without an heir. So that was something which could be problematic. Um, you say came to naught, but he did the naughting. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know, I know. Oh yeah, no, it was Caracalla's <laughs> fault. <laughs> Believe me. Um, now, Elagabalus, we know of three wives, including one he married twice, and he's probably married another time. Well, if we follow Dio, he was married another time, but we don't know her name. But out of all his marriages, no children were born. And these marriages entirely take place within a couple of years. So he arrives in Rome in 219. Mm. He's murdered in early 222.
0: And there's not a lot of detail about these marriages or who these women are, except for one obvious yeah um, exception but Dio treats it quite flippantly he, he married three, four, five times and he just leaves
1: it at that. yeah I mean we, we do have some details. one is a vestal virgin, one is a descendant of Max Aurelius so mm. there are some interesting and unorthodox marriages here. The first woman he married was Julia Cornelia. Paula, who he married in 219, probably soon after arriving in Rome. Mm. We don't know much about her except that she was from an aristocratic family, so she's probably from a senatorial family. Dio quips, this is book 80.9, the false Antoninus married Cornelia Paula in order, as he said, that he might sooner become a father, he who could not even be a man. Uh, And this is part of Dio's denigration of his his manliness. That's really petty. (laughs) It it is, but if we think of how Dio is subverting the imperial image, Mm. a Roman emperor is supposed to exhibit virtus, courage, bravery, the sum total of what it means to be a Roman weir, or man. And Roman men are supposed to father children, have families that will stand as representatives of families in the state. It's probably Julia Meiser who arranges this. There's lavish celebration. We have feasts, gladiatorial games, beast hunts, and an elephant and 51 tigers are slain. That's extravagant. Yeah. So once again, you know, it's an orgy of excess, which Mm. is going on. But soon after, he divorces Paula, allegedly because of some blemish on her body. This might be a concern that she wasn't religiously pure in some way. You know, if your body is deformed in some way, you might not be seen to be blessed by the gods. So we know Elagabalus was very concerned about his integrity as a priest. So he divorces Paula, then marries a Vestal Virgin. Yeah, wow. Now this, of course, is unprecedented sacrilegious. It basically offends the Roman state on multiple levels. These women were supposed to consecrate themselves, their virginity, to the preservation of Rome's hearth, the goddess Vesta, represented by the eternal flame which burns in the temple. Men who had adultery with uh, Vestals were severely punished, and the Vestals themselves were buried alive. But it seems that Elagabalus's motivation was to uh, conduct a symbolic marriage between his own god, Elagabal, and the goddess Vesta, mm-hmm. uh, which is the sacred hearth of Rome. And according to uh, Dio, indeed, he had the boldness to say, I did it in order that godlike children might spring from me, the high priest, and from her, the high priestess. And he wrote to the Senate, according to Herodian, by saying, he claimed this was a marriage between a priest and priestess and was thus fitting and sacred. I wonder if that's a convenient excuse. It's difficult to know because yeah. we have put an emphasis on his priestly position and, 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 exactly and, his, right, yeah. and, and his beliefs. But this fits in the tradition of bad emperors, defiling Vestal Virgins, as Caracalla was supposed to have done. This takes it to a whole new level. You know, we can't dispute the fact that Elagabalus did actually marry a Vestal Virgin. Mm. So he divorced her before too long, and then he married... No, no reasons given, just... No, and Dio just says he did not keep even this woman long not a good look, to put it mildly. His third wife is Ania Aurelia Faustina. That's two names that have come down from the Marcus Aurelius family. Exactly. Descended from Marcus Aurelius' daughter, Ania Galeria Aurelia Faustina, who had married the consul, Nius Claudius Severus. And she herself was married to Pomponius Bassus, a leading senator in Rome. But Elagabalus had him executed, even uh, when she was still in mourning, Elagabalus married Anna Aurelia Faustina. Wow. She was divorced. The identity of the fourth wife, whom Dio mentions, isn't known. But he then married Aquilia Severa again. The, the Vestal virgin. virgin. Okay. Yes. So this was all in the space of a couple of years. Yeah. There's a sense here that maybe he was saying one wife wasn't religiously pure. No children were born. I do wonder, with all these marriages, whether Elagabus may have been infertile, mm. uh, for example. There were certainly stories about what he does to his genitalia, which um, oh, might we'll, not- um, we'll, get, we'll get into, but we won't get into. No, yeah. Um, uh, but he's a confused teenager who doesn't know what he wants. Yeah, and he's probably being pressured by multiple groups within the court, all pushing their own agendas. Yeah. So he's got his mother, his grandmother, and other courtiers as well. Mm. Yes, once again, we must remember he was still barely 20 when he died- so this is, this is a young man. Yeah, a lot of the stories
0: that we get from all the historical sources portray somebody who's very confused about his sexuality and mm. gender. Mm. Now, this is something that I'm saying with hindsight yes. and with current sensibilities. Yes, but at the time, it seems like there's not a lot of understanding about what Elagabalus might have been going through. I mean, I know it's a different society, and there was a lot of acceptance of homosexual relationships. Yeah. yeah. They kind of knew it was part of the course. It was a very Greek thing to do, if I can put it that way. Yeah. But this seemed to be a whole other level of confusion.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, I think it's at least the case that today... We might use the term bisexual to describe Elagabalus because of his many relationships with uh, both men and women. That term would not have been used at the time, obviously. So again, that that's a modern label that people might want to put on Elagabalus. But there are also various stories about changes that he wants to make to his genitalia, mm. uh, which which are described by the ancient sources. And there is a continuum in these stories. So some of the stories are very similar to those told about other young emperors such as Nero and Caligula. So, for example, Dio says he would go to the taverns by night wearing a wig and there ply the trade of a female huckster. He frequented the notorious brothels, drove out the prostitutes and played the prostitute himself. So, you must remember back to stories about Nero and Sporus, for example, Mm. um, whom he allegedly married. So, the stories are not unique to Elagabalus in that way. And a lot of the stories seem to come from the fact that religious practices that Elagabalus would undertake in his role as priest of Messa were then misunderstood and were used as a basis for denigration of him. So, for example... Dio talks about him wearing a hairnet, painting his eyes, dabbing them with white lead, shaving his chin and holding a festival to mark the event. That's something that Nero did, for example. Mm. The fact that, you know, when he shaved his first hairs or his beard, there there was a festival to celebrate that. But he was coming a man. But Dio then goes on to say that Elagabalus had the hairs plucked out so as to look more like a woman. And he was allegedly betrothed in marriage to one of his favourites, um, Heracles. We will discuss further. There are stories about him promoting lowborn men whom he had sex with to high office. I guess a extreme version of putting your allies in trusted positions. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. but they're promoted to you know key offices such as being in charge of the equestrian census, you know high administrative posts which have control. Now, Cassius Dio then goes on to say, and I'll quote, uh, he carried his lewdness to such a point that he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision, promising them large sums for doing so. This is uh, Dio 80.16. This story is only found in Zonaras. The Byzantine epitomator who relied on Dio. Mm. And we don't have the original text of Dio for this point. So um, in the Lerb edition, which most people use the Greek and English translation, Boisavan, uh, the original editor, had to order the fragments as he saw fit. And then this is kept in the Lerb edition by Carey. So we're not quite sure exactly where it have come in Dio's original narrative. There is another later Byzantine source called Leo, and another called Kedrinus, who says that Avitus, according to Dio, asked his physician to uh, employ his skill and make an incision in his body so it clearly comes back to dio's original text there Mm. this is what the later byzantine authors attribute it to but we don't have dio's original text so we don't know in which context this was originally found i wonder if it might have come out of stories that he wanted to remove his genitals so he'd be castrated, perhaps like the priest of Cybele, it's difficult then to square that with his desire to father a son. So we do find later on uh, when he adopts Alexander Severus, his cousin, that he says, well, next year I'm going to have my own son. Mm. So there is contradictory evidence here. There's constant marriages, wanting to bear a son. At the other time, operations being conducted on his genitalia.
0: But he also uh, goes in the brothel and takes over the role of the women. Oh, of the women, and, yes. Uh, yeah. And you know we'll, we'll get into, is it Heracles?
1: Uh, Heracles, yes. Heracles yes. Uh, quite soon. He seems to be very confused about his gender. Yeah, it's difficult We can't analyze someone's psychology but it may be the case that Elagabalus did have a gender identity disorder Um, it's difficult to know especially since the stories are used in the most extreme ways by our sources i will say however that these rumors extended beyond the imperial court they're not just found in dio and that's really important for example Elian, who was contemporary uh, at the time, lived under Elagabalus and Severus Alexander, uh, wrote a history of animals, was probably an outsider around the edge of court circles. He wrote a work called The Denouncement of a Womanly Man about Elagabalus, wow. which he was too scared to publish while Elagabalus was still alive. Yeah, dude, don't buy me Yes, yes. <laughs> so he published it under Severus Alexander's reign. Oh so that, is that work around? Is it, it doesn't survive We have some oh. frag, we have some <laughs> fragments, we have yeah. some fragments, yeah. um, but it doesn't survive. Okay. But we can also see the spread of Elagabalus's negative reputation in later horoscopes and planetary tables from Egypt uh, which refer uh, to his reign. So one horoscope which probably comes from the mid third uh, century refers to Elagabalus as Antoninus the Carufos, which is a Greek word. We're not quite sure what it means. The editor of the papyrus, uh, Ray, uh, thinks it means catamite, but another scholar thinks it might mean virgin rapist, and this might refer to his two marriages to Aquilius Severa, the Vestal Virgin. Mm. Another planetary table from Egypt calls him the unholy little Antoninus, um, and there are various other uses of this term as well. So they are produced after Elagabalus' death and damnatio memoriae and Severus Alexander's rewriting of the regime to portray himself in the best light. But it shows that hostility isn't confined to Cassius Dio. Mm-hmm. There are other stories about Elagabalus and his behavior and his relationship with Vestal Virgins as well. It seems to
0: be... The most stable relationships that he has aren't his marriages. Yes. Uh, they're his, um, his lovers. He's, well, he refers to this man as his husband.
1: Yes. So he's supposed to have been married to someone called Heracles, and he meets Heracles in a chariot race. And Dio says in book 80, 15, it seems that in a certain race, Heracles fell out of his chariot just opposite the seat of Sardinapolis, that is the emperor. Losing his helmet in his fall and still being beardless and adorned with a crown of yellow hair, he attracted the attention of the emperor and was immediately rushed to the palace. And there, by his nocturnal feats, he captivated Sardanapalus more than ever and became exceedingly powerful.
0: Yeah, that escalated quickly.
1: So this is a a slave, a a chariot racer. A a chariot racer. And, you know, he's said to have, have married him and even wanted to name him Caesar. Yeah, wow. Which uh, his grandmother, Julia Mysa, opposed vehemently. I'm not surprised. Yes. Again, this is seen as behavior unbecoming a Roman emperor. It alienates the soldiers, the Praetorian Guard. If we put this in context, Elagabalus himself is a teenage boy. He's met another teenage boy who he's attracted to, and so this seems to have been a love affair which was taking place throughout his reign. Mm. Once again, the problem is that the teenage boy is also the emperor. Mm. You cannot make your teenage lover Caesar. Once again, you have the conflict between uh, a young man and the establishment in which he f- he found himself.
0: And uh, it's also mentioned... Oh, this is in Dio.
1: Heracles beat Elagabalus. Elagabalus and gave him black eyes. Yes. Yeah. So there's an unpleasant tinge to that as well. Yeah. Again, it's very difficult to separate fact from fiction here. I know I keep repeating this, and, you know, you've obviously come to similar conclusions for looking at the evidence, you know. A young man who is thrust into a very difficult position might be acting out in some ways, um, but on the other hand, you know, he's a teenage boy. And then we've got Aurelius Zotarchus. He's from Smyrna. He becomes a rival for Heracles, this relationship begins because Elagabalus allegedly has spies on the lookout for men with large penises across the empire, it's,
0: um, <laughs> I'm which- so Sorry, I shouldn't, I, I've got to get that out of my system. That's okay. It, This man is specifically brought to Rome because of his reputation of having a large penis. Yes, yes.
1: Dio says in book 80.16, this Aurelius not only had a body that was beautiful all over, seeing that he was an athlete, but in particular he greatly surpassed all others in the size of his private parts. This fact was reported to the emperor by those who were on the lookout for such things, and the man was suddenly whisked away from the games and brought to Rome, accompanied by an immense escort, larger than Abgarus had in the reign of Severus or Tiridates, that of Nero. You could look at this in the vein of great and fantastical objects often presented to the Roman Emperor. There's the story about Theodos II and the huge apple. So there is the story that people bring amazing things to Rome so perhaps this uh, this was, is an amazing thing this <laughs> was an amazing thing yes yeah so Aurelius Verticus is then appointed cubicularius that is in charge of the Emperor's bedchamber yeah before he had even been seen by the Emperor was honored with the name of the latter's grandfather Avitus Whoa. was adorned with garlands at a festival and entered the palace lighted by the glare of many torches Very low tortures. No (laughs) tortures, yes. Um, (laughs) Sorry, um, sorry. (laughs) It's okay. Um, uh, Sardanapalus, on seeing him, sprang up with rhythmic movements, and then, when Aurelius addressed him with the usual salutation, My Lord Emperor, hail, he bent his neck so as to assume a ravishing feminine pose, and turning his eyes upon him with a melting gaze, answered without any hesitation, Call me not lord, for I am a lady. Then Sardanapalus immediately joined him in the bath, and finding him when stripped to be equal to his reputation, burned with even greater lust, reclined on his breast, and took dinner like some loved mistress in his bosom. Of course, Elagabalus already has a lover, Mm. uh, Heracles, and this new lover arouses his jealousy. So there's rivalry between Elagabalus' lovers at court. And Dio goes on to say, But Heracles, fearing that Zoticus would capture the emperor more completely than he himself could, and that he might therefore suffer some terrible fate at his hand, as often happens in the case of rival lovers, caused the cupbearers, who were well disposed towards him, to administer a drug that abated the other's manly prowess. And Zoticus, after a whole night of embarrassment, being unable to secure an erection, was deprived of all the honours that he had received and was driven out of the palace, out of Rome, and later out of the rest of Italy. And this saved his life. Yeah, I guess. And. Unhappy, happy ending. Yes. I mean, because Heracles died with Elagabalus, so in this way, Zoticus managed to escape. Mm. Once again, you know, there are many stories, for example, about women being given abortifacium to make an abortion so they don't have children. There's that story of sort of rivalries there. This is the male equivalent where Zoticus is unable to uh, perform, and therefore he is sent away by Elagabalus. You know,
0: Dio's got an awful suspicious
1: amount of detail. Yes, <laughs> and it's quite interesting because Dio's account of Elagabalus' reign and these kind of sexual details are unparalleled in the rest of the history. Yeah. So he really goes to town here in order to denigrate Elagabalus' character and behaviour. It could be said that Dio tells these stories because, as far as he's concerned, they're already being circulated. Yep. So he's just recording what everyone knows. On the other hand, you you can't but escape the notion that he might enjoy slating Elagabalus in this fashion, Mm. because for Dio, Elagabalus represents everything that a Roman emperor shouldn't be, even more so than Caracalla. I think there's several levels of misunderstanding here. There's cultural misunderstanding, there's religious misunderstanding, there's misunderstanding of sexuality and gender identity. But this is the way in which Romans denigrated other Romans. Mm-hmm. So Rome,
0: look, I'm surprised they put up with this for as long as they did. Yes. In all honesty. We do have a, a downfall of Elagabalus, mm. such as it is. So in the meantime, Elagabalus's family must be really concerned about the bad position that this is putting
1: them in. Yes, and particularly the loss of favour with the army, the Praetorian Guard, in Rome. So Mysa and the Somias, you know, the extent of their power is shown by the fact that they were invited to attend Senate meetings, which you know, is, is really quite extraordinary.
0: It's um, the only time that that happens yeah, for a is Yeah, uh,
1: because when Agrippina was in power and the Senate met in the Palatine, she was had to hide behind a curtain, curtain to, yeah. to listen. But mysa and Somias also represent continuity, stability. Mm they can try and persuade people that, you know, there will be a good emperor succeeding with Elagabalus. In 221, so this is, you know, about eight, nine months before Elagabalus is actually murdered, Elagabalus is ordered to adopt his cousin, Bassianus Alexianus, the uh, future emperor Severus Alexander, Mm. who is the son of Julia Memea. Alexander as formally adopted made Caesar but he's kept well away from Elagabalus you know educated the best tutors so that he's brought up as a good roman boy he's been groomed to take over the position properly and this seems to have been an attempt to conciliate the praetorian guard to show there was a succession plan in place this is an insurance policy it is yeah. yes at this point elagabalus had still not fathered any children And when this happened, Elagabalus was still married to Ania Faustina, the descendant of Marcus Aurelius, because she's styled mother of our Caesar in inscriptions.
0: Ah, okay, yeah.
1: Elagabalus and Alexander are joint consuls in 222, but Elagabalus continues to make noises that he will soon have his own son. He says, I will be even more lucky in the following year when I will be consul with a legitimate son. So this may be why he divorced Faustina and married Aquilius Severa again, to try and give birth to a son who would succeed him. So there are concerns that Elagabalus will actually kill Severus Alexander. So, you know, they have to employ trusted servants to prepare and serve his food. Mm. But the army soon turns against Elagabalus in favor of Alexander. And this may have been prompted by Julia Miser and then Julia Mamia, Alexander's mother saying, right, enough is enough and then isolating Elagabalus and Julia Somias in order to move on from the excesses of Elagabalus' reign.
0: Oh look, there's there's so much involved in this kid that mm. could be, could
1: have been the breaking point. So I don't think it needs to be any certain one thing. Exactly. I think it's it's a series of problems. Yeah. He's murdered by the Praetorian Guard on the 11th or 12th of March, 222. Dio says in book 80.20, he made an attempt to flee and would have got away somewhere by being placed in a chest had he not been discovered and slain. His mother, Julius Sormias, who embraced him and clung tightly to him, perished with him. Their heads were cut off and their bodies, after being stripped naked, were first dragged all over the city. And then the mother's body was cast aside somewhere or other while his was thrown into the river. Mm. Uh, Hence the name of uh, Tiberinus, uh, the one of the Tiber. Uh, Dio says, such was the fate of Tiberinus. And
0: that was the only time that he used that name. (laughs) Just that once. Well, well, it's, 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 it's,
1: it's, you know, uh, how he dies and, you know, and that's, you know, the death of her. Of a criminal, really?
0: Yes, I'm trying to think back. The only time I can think of uh, an emperor's body being desecrated is that such a fair word. I, I, yeah, I, Vitellius. Yes, head cut off, yeah. thrown down the Traitor's steps. Yep,
1: that's right. Yep. Yeah, for another Gamonian steps in Rome. Yeah, yes, yes.
0: And you know, he was essentially a usurper. Where um, you know, like him or not, Elagabalus was legitimate, legitimate emperor, emperor at the time. Yes. Yeah.
1: And most of his associates were killed with him. Heracles was torn to pieces by the populace. The god Elagabalus was banished from Rome altogether. And under Severus Alexander, the temple of Elagabalus on the Palatine was reconfigured into one for Jupiter. The only man to survive from Elagabalus' regime Was the urban prefect Valerius Comazon, who had uh, formerly been an actor and then, you know, was entered the army Mm -hmm. and then became Praetorian prefect, and then this is the mime, the mime, yes. Yes. So he actually survives, and Dio has a wonderful uh, account of of Comazon who survives. So Dio says Aurelius Eubulus, another of. Elagabalus's lewd associates had been killed and torn to pieces by the populace and the soldiers, and Fulvius, the city prefect, perished at the same time with him. Comazon has succeeded Fulvius, even as he had succeeded Fulvius's predecessor. For just as a mask used to be carried into the theatres to occupy the stage during the intervals in the acting, when it was left vacant by the comic actors, so Comazon was put in the vacant place of the men who had been Steve Prefects in his day. Now, you know, he was always rotated in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he actually survives into the reign of Severus Alexander. Mm. So Elagabalus is an emperor who
0: is always included on the list of bad emperors mm. but the more that i read about him the less that I, I i don't see him as a good emperor no i don't see him as a bad emperor per se either you know yes he killed his rivals coming into it yes he was a bit quick with the sword mm. but there are other emperors that we consider being quite good mm. who did the same sort of thing mm. he strikes me as Confused, But, uh, you know, I I look at him with current kind of context that Mm. if I saw a young teenager Mm. acting in this sort of way, Mm. would I think that they're evil?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: I kind of wonder what you think about that Mm. and how you teach about somebody like this, Mm. because, you know, this is somebody who is the age of your students in first year, for example. Yes. And how current historians see him in something like this. Do you think he deserves to be on lists of bad emperors?
1: No, I mean, all the criticisms of Elagabalus don't really focus on his administration or what he's like as a ruler. Mm. It focuses on the extremes of his behavior. So it focuses on the fact that he continues to be a priest of Elagabal and that his dress and behavior is not befitting a Roman emperor. It focuses particularly on his relationships and his sexuality and there are many aspects of those which are clearly misunderstood by the ancient sources because they don't understand gender identity mm. um, at that time elagabalus's relationships are no different in some ways from other young emperors, except, once again, they're taken to extremes. So he just doesn't have male lovers. He is also said to have, you know, debauched a Vestal Virgin when he married her. Mm. So it's clear that it was not an easy time for Rome, that you find, I think, a young man who was caught up in a difficult position, but he's also a young man with supreme power. Yes. Yeah. So he can lash out in ways, you know, all he will be executed because he wants to marry their wife because he can. He can get his spies to go around the empire,
0: keep an eye out for men with large penises. Yeah, he can because he's emperor. He's emperor. So that,
1: that comes down to the Mel Brooks quote, it's good to be the king. Yes, yeah. And this is one thing we find with patterns of young emperors. I mm. think it's really interesting to look at young emperors and how they behave because Rome has evolved into a dynastic monarchy where young men are going to be put on the throne simply because of their heritage. But at the same time, they're young, they're impressionable, they want to experiment with their sexuality. For Elagabalus also, there's his religious background as well, which he actually tries to integrate into Rome. So I'm not going to say he was a great emperor. Um, Mm. He certainly wasn't. It was certainly a very troubled time uh, for Rome, but we also have to try and understand his perspective, which is very difficult because it's difficult to get into someone's mind when we don't have their own personal diaries, for example. Mm. Um, And when I try and teach Elagabalus in the context of the Severan dynasty, I do talk about him as a teenager who is placed on the throne and quite often we have young emperors I say you know imagine if you were in charge of a Roman Empire that stretches across Europe North Africa the Middle East you know imagine what a weight of responsibility that that would be on your shoulders. And we can't always predict how people will handle that responsibility because there are lots of competing forces. So Elagabalus has his mother, his grandmother, commanders of the Praetorian Guard, senators, and they all want a piece of him to act in some sort of way. Mm. It's logical that in that sense, he'd want to retreat into the arms of someone that he loved who provided him with some sort of sanctuary from... That kind of environment. Yeah. And then that person beats him and gives him black eyes. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So there, there's some kind of you know, domestic violence um, in that kind of relationship. Uh, if we believe the stories, it, it's difficult to know mm. uh, what is fact and fiction. Uh, some people might say this is rationalizing what's happened or, you know, trying to take the fun out of the extreme stories. Because people like to believe the stories, because on some levels, they are entertaining, such as, you know, the the stories of the rose petals falling. On one level, they're entertaining. Mm. On another level, they're also horrifying, Mm. because these are things that happened to real people. And this was an autocratic regime. And living under this regime must have been terrifying. So I think you have people who are fearful and afraid on multiple levels, both the populace and the Senate, but also the emperor. I think he might have been very scared as well. That's Dr.
0: Caelan Davenport, Senior Lecturer in Roman History at Macquarie University and Humboldt Research Fellow at Goethe University, Frankfurt. And you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Please leave a review, as always they are appreciated. Spain, I am calling you out, I know that you're listening. Review baby, where's the review? Show Emperors of Rome some love. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Caelan on Twitter. Caelan is at Dr C Davenport, I am at Nightlight Guy, the podcast is at Rome Podcast, and I'd say you're not even listening at this point, you've just fallen asleep listening to my dulcet tones and my slightly sexy Australian accent. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.